Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you are new to the show, my name is Jay and I'm an investor looking for the smartest home for my cash. That's what we do here. And my guest today is Tavi Costa of Crestcat Capital. Now, I love chatting to Tavi because he puts his money where his mouth is. We begin today's conversation talking about the biggest misconceptions in the macro landscape and then segue very quickly into how he is playing those as an investor. What I mean is where he is allocating capital right now. As always, if you enjoy my work, I publish a weekly essay every Sunday where I dive into the psychology of decision-making. The most important tool in every investor's tool belt is the management of their own mind. We jump into the heuristics, biases, and blind spots that lead to the best and worst decisions investors can make. If you wanna join 40,000 other investors on this journey, hit that link right beneath this piece of content. But here is Tavi Costa. Enjoy. Okay, here I am with Tavi Costa. Tavi, it's great to have you back in the program. I appreciate you making the time. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Me too. Okay, so here's where I want to start. I want to start with... Uh, high level, your perspective on uh, economic outlook, because I'm seeing kind of two stories play out right now, um, kind of like a decoupling, if you will, between what the media is telling us our life is and what life is for a lot of people. Uh, for example, last week, I saw three stories, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, all putting out big headlines about how we've mastered the soft landing, right? And this recession may not even occur. And if so, it'll be a lot softer than people anticipate. Simultaneously, we're looking at things like auto loan delinquencies hitting all-time highs, credit card application rejection rates hitting all-time highs, commercial real estate transactions are kind of non-existent. Um, and it seems like the boots on the ground experience is very different from the one being broadcasted in the media. Where do you land, Chav, you personally on the uh, recession, no recession, hard landing, soft landing approach? I think that the fact that a, a hard landing hasn't happened just yet doesn't necessarily change the probability of one happening, meaning I think if anything, when we analyze most of the indicators that tend to precede recessions, I think all of them are basically uh, you know, warning signals right now. Uh, yield curve inversions already happened. We've seen already 90% of the treasury curve inverted. Um, we've already started to see contractions in most of the fundamentals of companies, while sales have uh, somewhat got, you know, I don't think they're as as profound of a decline. If you looked at most of the bottom line of companies, I think that's that's pretty clear that we're seeing that already. But then you have some other things that are part of the kind of divergence that we're seeing, this major divergences in markets. And I'll explain a few of them, the credit spreads being so suppressed, you know, we're still seeing volatility being very low, and it's not in line with the potential of a hard lending environment that we can uh, get into. So I think there's uh, opportunities on the short side. We've had a, a cycle that is playing out very similar to the tech bubble, uh, where there was the bust, the initial bust, and then uh, markets ran up again and actually retested the, the prior highs in October of 2000. And uh, and that's really when we saw everything fell apart uh, after uh, in the in the later parts of the year. Uh, potentially, that could be the case here. I've I've never seen a a time when the Fed tightened monetary conditions so much, and we don't see those lagging effects become 
very pronounced in the overall economy. So I'm I'm very concerned because I think valuations are are too extreme, especially if we are entering a, a period where cost of capital is supposed to be, stay higher than uh, than historically average, and also inflation is to me a a, a real underlying issue in in the overall economy, being driven by a lot of uh, you know, important factors. And so all that should be, uh, I think, uh, ultimately cause a compression of multiples in equity markets. Uh, but also, you know, we're still seeing the development of uh, tangible assets and commodities doing well. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's you know, different parts of that market are working at different times. Uh, right now, we're starting to see oil played out again, very nicely you know oil has been breaking out recently and so forth um recently as well we saw old gold doing you know he reaching the bottom uh in september of 2022 along with silver and uh now we've had some more volatility recently but it is interesting that all of those markets are still sort of uh strengthening over time and i think this is not the end of it i think it's the very beginning and you can see even Brazilian equities doing better than U.S. equities, although we've had this AI euphoria. Um, you know, Brazilian equities are outperforming the S&P. So, sorry, it's a lot to unpack, but I think that we're going to have a hard landing scenario. And uh, you know, I, I'm I'm in that camp, and I think it, it could happen. You know, in the next six months or so. Yeah, no, that was an excellent answer, and I, I do want to unpack a bunch of it, starting with where you started. You said, you know. Um, you said people maybe make the assumption that if the hard landing didn't occur, maybe on schedule, right, that it might not occur at all, right? And we make this mistake often. Uh, investors often make this mistake where the event doesn't happen on the predicted date. So they make the assumption it just won't happen when in reality, it, you know, nothing happens like that in the markets. You, you mentioned maybe some opportunities on the short side and also, you know, a compression of multiples in the equity market. So, you know, the S&P is kind of on a six month tear right now. Is that where you're looking for short opportunities? I do. Um, I, I think there are some, you know, very interesting ways that their markets are offering asymmetry today in terms of optionality uh, in derivatives because of the suppressed volatility. You know, Apple, for instance, is a great example. You know, the, the stock is uh, volatility-wise so suppressed, and in the the, the implied vol of of put options and other things in some of the mega caps are just not in line with, you know, this increase of market cap that we've had recently is not in line with the improvement of fundamentals. I'll give Apple's great example is, you know, if we look at free cash flow two years out, it's supposed to be flat. So why do we justify a trillion dollars worth of improvement in market cap just in the last six months or so? I think it's just, uh, you know, this is not, um, I think, yeah, there's some some really dis big distortions today in, in in the stock market in the U.S. And funny enough, I, I just don't understand why there's some businesses outside of uh, outside of the U.S. that look incredibly cheap. I mean, why pay 40, 50 times earnings on a business in the U.S. when you can pay three, two times earnings outside of the U.S. with tremendous growth potential given uh, the resource-rich uh, aspect of some economies like Brazil and other places. And so I can see that there's, um, and, and that is just not just the equity market. I mean, I, I've never seen a time when the U.S. The standard of living or cost of living uh, in the U.S. and Canada as well has been so high relative to other parts of the world. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, <laughs> one funny place to look at it, look, just look at the Big Mac index. When was the last time the Big Mac index was showing U.S. Big Mac be more expensive than Brazilian Big Mac? And it's, it, you know, we haven't seen that in ages. And so <laughs> it's a one interesting takeaway, but do that with housing, do that with, with stocks, you know, do that with bonds. Um, and so it, it is, uh, to me, it, it, it is an opportunity, but also very scary what's going on in equity markets in the U.S. Um, and so the treasury market is is sort of what holds the key for the entire economy in the U.S. and the global economy. You know, even thinking about just recently, we've had what happened with Japan, right? They've had to basically buy unscheduled bonds of their own government to suppress rates but if you look at the interest rates in Japan, it all only went up by you know 0.65 basis points. That's it. That's what's causing all this madness. And so that really speaks volume about what's happening in terms of the leverage in developed economies worldwide, not just in Japan, but in the US too. And so I I, I don't understand how you know anyone would justify paying those high multiples in a world where the only way to justify really this is, is we're going to enter another 10 years or so of high growth and low cost of capital, which is probably quite the opposite of what we're probably going to see here. But investors typically fall for the same patterns every time, which is to say what happened over the last quarter will probably happen during the next quarter in terms of equity performance. You know, high prices kind of self-perpetuate, right? Like investors chase high prices into higher prices. And you know, I had a guest on the podcast, David Hunter, um, on maybe four or five months ago, and he was making some very bullish predictions for the S&P. And my audience was destroying him in the comments, saying there's no way, there's no value in the underlying assets. Why on earth would the S&P take off running? But his case is real simple. He said the underlying asset doesn't matter, right? Investors will just chase prices higher and then chase those higher prices. And that self-perpetuates. And, you know, we are in a period, maybe, uh, in the equity market, where emotion is the biggest driver of share performance. Um, and a lot of investors are really just trading share prices, not actually investing in any underlying asset. It's the last thing on their mind. All they're doing is trading share prices. Look, it's been very difficult to be a bear, right? I mean, it, it, and it's it's easy to say that because it, in the last 10 years or so, the, even this new generation of investors have completely unrealistic expectations for returns in, in assets in that they invest in. And so uh, I think I don't I'm not sure this is really sustainable what we're seeing. At some point it will um I think we're gonna see some issues. And I personally think it's gonna happen all sooner than most people think. Um I that doesn't mean that doom and gloom scenario is necessarily uh, a bad thing for for investors. I think there's a lot of ways to um, allocate capital smartly and 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 things that are really cheap. There's no point to be like I said to be paying 40, 50 times earnings on a company uh, when you can. You know, it's all about it's not all about returns. It's about risk adjusted returns. In my opinion, um, you know, we all want to go to bed <laughs> calmly, but uh, I think there's fundamental problems happening in the treasury market that it will spill over over um the global economy and to me it's not just a treasury market it's really all sovereign bonds the amount of issuances that we're seeing today of treasuries is really unprecedented when we went to business schools ourselves and 
when to learn about the risk of investing in bond market, we learn about interest rate risk, inflation risk, the default possibilities, but we really didn't learn about the risk of issuances, the supply side being um, you know, flooded like we've seen recently. And this is a, a problem we've had of almost like a monetary and fiscal uh, divergence in policies. Well, uh, while, while the, the Fed is trying or attempting to reduce inflation, by raising interest rates and shrinking their balance sheet side, the government's doing the opposite. It's it's spending money right and left. Um, if even if we reduce the or exclude interest payments from all the overall picture, we're we're spending about twenty plus percent of GDP today uh, on fiscal spending. Not a lot of people know that, and we're running a twin deficit that is already at the same levels. Uh, that is uh, comparable to the worst parts of the global financial crisis in 08. And so why does that matter? Because it's just compounding the debt problem at a rate that is really alarming. And those rates of compounding will essentially create the uh, the increase in issuances that somebody has to buy those treasuries. The Fed is not buying. And so at what point something breaks here? You know, we keep saying financial conditions are not tightening, although the Fed has been raising rates. But when I looked at interest rates being where they are, and we're seeing so much debt that it's going to have to be rolled over very soon. At what point does that really start to impact the global economy? Uh, just the, the, the federal debt alone, 45% of the federal debt will mature in less than two years. They have to reissue that debt alone. And 15, 16 months ago, it, interest rates were at 0%. So who's going to be, you know, what is that going to do to interest payments just, you know, six? to two years from now? Um, that is a big question. Um, and so I, I had a chart the other day where interest payments is already surpassing defense spending. So you're yeah. starting to see that that's going to start to constrain uh, policymaking in general. And I think that's that's a much bigger question is, you know, who is going to take care of the treasury market? I think we all know the answer. I hope I'm not uh, you know, surprising anybody, but it's probably going to be the Fed. And so the fact that we're experiencing such a intricate macro environment, and at the same time, I see people so skeptic to invest in gold, commodities, other tangible alternatives, is shocking, really. I mean, if you say no, you know, nobody's a skeptic. Well, look no further than the 60-40 portfolios that own zero gold allocation today or zero commodities or zero Bitcoin, or zero real estate, and so forth. And so, to me, that's that's uh, <laughs> that's going to have to change in in five to ten years. Mm. I, I did see that chart you put out, and I think as as of last, I saw tax receipts. Fourteen percent of tax receipts were just going to interest payments alone. Um, now, what's your take on a Fed pivot then under these circumstances, Tavi? Would you expect you know, another 25 basis point rise and maybe that's it. And then maybe a pause. What's your, do you have any thoughts and speculation on rate increases, pauses, or pivots? Well, I think the Fed is not going to cut rates until something breaks. I don't think they will deliberately start cutting rates because we've had inflation improving or anything along those lines. Um, and so if you looked at the euro dollar curve, it's just a way to uh, measure what the market is expecting, um, which is now, you know, very 
actually the largest price or rate cuts uh, expected in history. I disagree with that as well. I think there's, you know, I think inflation develops through waves. I've had many charts showing that. People used to come up to me and say, well, you know, this is a chart of the 70s. This is nothing like the 70s. We didn't have debt problem back then. Well, look at the 40s. There was also three waves of inflation in the 30s and 40s yeah. coming out of the, the Great Depression. So what does that tell us is that, well, we got to be aware that uh, there are base effects and there's just psychological impacts in the economy when you have inflation getting out of control once that then it develops through over time. And so, and by the way, this is not a U.S. phenomenon. You can see that in Brazil, in Venezuela, Turkey, other places too. So understanding that as a model, I would expect that inflation is very close to or in the process of bottoming. And you can see that already with commodities beginning to rise um, and the base effects that we're going to see as well through this year is starting this month. Um, and, you know, break evens are starting to move higher. Ten-year yields are also being forced higher, not only through the issuance problem, but also inflation expectation. Um, and, you know, every day I go on, a, on the newspapers, in fact, there's one right in front of me showing, you know, protests on the streets and, you know, workers saying we don't want to settle for a thirty percent increase in wages. We want to settle for more. So, you know, clearly there's something very embedded in the economy right now in terms of inflationary forces, and that's going to have to have an impact on on Fed policy. And so, people thinking inflation will go away and the Fed will be able to pause and and actually even cut rates as markets are assuming now. I disagree. I don't think that that will be the case. I think inflation will learn that it could not only bottom, but potentially even start to uh, reaccelerate to the upside. Um, oil can be something that can lead the way to the upside on that front. Remember, it's 73, 74 or other periods when you have stagflationary environments. I think that's the big risk right now. And some parts of the market are still pricing an environment where it's more like 08 and 2000. And this is very different than that. This is not a deflationary shock at all. So I, you know, like, I hope I answer your question, but I don't think, I don't think the Fed will deliberately cut rates anytime soon. And it would be hard. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned oil prices, you mentioned uh, uh, gasoline prices, right? Which are suddenly on, on a bit of a tear as is diesel and, and gasoline prices are probably the most like right in front of uh, the public in terms of uh, understanding inflation numbers as possible, right? Everybody fills up their car. They're looking at those numbers. We're up 30, 40 cents per gallon in the last few weeks alone in some U.S. cities. And then the lagging effect of that is the increasing cost of diesel goes into the manufacturing of everything, right? And so I, you know, I'm, I don't mean to like compartmentalize this one ingredient, but when I see that, I can't help but think we're getting queued up for another significant wave, uh, inflationary wave. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that we're probably looking this winter at some pretty inflated prices? Well, not only agree, but I'm positioned uh, portfolio-wise to, to capitalize on a reacceleration okay. of inflation. I think um, investors should be doing that. And, and if that's the case, um, it doesn't mean the Fed won't cut rates in the future. That, I just want to make that yeah, clear. Yeah. Okay. But if if the if that curve needs to be adjusted by inflation reaccelerating, 
then we shouldn't be expecting record rate cuts a year out, right? Because probably that's not going to be the case. Now, what's important back in the 70s, and I'm using the 70s, but you can look at the 40s too. Inflation, when it reaccelerates, it tends to create downward pressure in equity markets. And that's because of the expectation of what the Fed will have to do to okay. stop inflation from growing. And so would that be the case here? Most likely. This is why I think there is um, one separation or a disconnection in the market right now that is really interesting is NASDAQ relative to 10-year yields. And this relationship is important because it really started in 2021 when we started to see this inflationary forces become more and more pronounced and more established in, 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 this, in the system. And with that, correlations began to change. So you saw bond markets collapsing. You started to see some non, you know, uh, uh, actually businesses that are not profitable beginning to uh, be impacted as well at the same time. And there was a very clear uh, correlation between 10-year yields and NASDAQ, where if NASDAQ was, I'm sorry, if 10-year yields are rising, cost of capital was rising, NASDAQ was, was being impacted uh, negatively. But recently, we've had this break of this correlation where 10-year yields continue to move higher. Um, and although NASDAQ is, is moving higher as well. So something has got to give. And in my opinion, this the separation really started. Well, it's not my opinion. It's factual. It started when ChatGPT was announced and so forth. And so uh, this AI euphoria has created... Um, an idea of the markets that perhaps won't really materialize anytime soon. Yes, AI is an important breakthrough and so forth, but uh, would that be something that will create uh, the the level of productivity in the short term? In, that's the key word in, in our expression, in the short term to, to, to fix the problems that we have? I don't think so. And so I believe some companies have improved fundamentally, like NVIDIA and so forth, uh, justify somewhat of that appreciation we've had, but companies like Apple increasing by a trillion dollars or so with no improvement in fundamentals. And there's plenty others. And some of those actually have to roll their debt very soon, um, like I said before. So I think that that's going to be squeezing margins soon. And this is the whole reason why inflationary periods cause multiple compression is because right. uh, you tend to see Either uh, markets prices have to catch up with fundamentals, or uh, fundamentals actually get uh, squeezed by wages and salaries growth, material costs growth, and so forth. That causes margins to be smaller than uh, people were expecting. So, uh, I, I like to look at history. I don't. I don't like to just uh, you know uh, you know believe in a narrative that is just things are going to be uh, rosy just because of those uh, those new. Uh, breakthroughs and, and technological advancements. And I, you know, I appreciate those, but I, I think history is more important here. Mm. Well, you mentioned you are, you're building your portfolio accordingly, setting up maybe some defensive plays, uh, talking about capital allocation right now. Tavi, where are you looking? Well, on the long side, I continue to be very focused on uh, tangible assets in general. I think there is a place for gold uh, as, as a defensive asset. There is a place for more uh, inflationary assets. Uh, still, oil looks attractive, not as attractive as it was three weeks ago or so, but sure. it still looks attractive. And I think it will continue to go higher. 
net gas is something we own as well. Agricultural commodities are clearly uh, starting to form a trend to the upside. Um, and the real asymmetry to me is is on owning resources in the ground. Um, but then, you know, that's a separate discussion is more of an activist approach of owning companies that have, um, you know, a, a real either already have a resource or are very likely to have one. And the reason for that is because when you look at that part of the market today, everything is priced for failure. So yeah. it's it's very hard to uh, for investors to distinguish which ones are high quality ones. And, you know, if you're, if you're an investor actually for the long term, this is a fantastic opportunity. It's a way of, uh, of buying a business that is priced for failure that potentially have much higher odds of, uh, of having a major discovery or something along those lines. So that to me is, is where I spend a lot of my time on the loan side. Um, I also think Brazilian mar uh, equities look very attractive today. South America in general does too. Uh, we're seeing a construction boom being caused by green revolution, uh, by also what's happening in terms of the this onshoring of of manufacturing. That I think it's it's an important one. Uh, we're seeing defense spending, all those things. All of those changes are going to cause a construction boom. Even in the U.S., think about housing markets. We're talking about how things are expensive. How do you fix a housing market being expensive? Well, you got to build, and so. You know, we're going to see a lot of those things happen in the U.S. And, and other developed economies. And I find it hard to believe that a place like Brazil won't be uh, playing a key role uh, strategically uh, and geopolitically uh, to uh, to supply most of those resources to the rest of the world. And we've seen this in the past, uh, in the early 2000s, when China was doing that on its own. Now, imagine the G7 economies doing all that this time around. So, I think there are great places to invest in a country like Brazil today. Uh, we've been focused on that front as well, looking for pullbacks and adding more. Recently, we've had one. I'm adding more to the portfolio. Um, I like steel producers, commodity producers. Um, I like some, the banks look really cheap. Um, so there's no shortage of things to be doing. Um, but obviously with the mindset of, yeah, things can get, uh, difficult here. So how do I hedge those positions? And if it is treasury markets, but really to me, uh, there are better ways to look for businesses that have long duration aspects that will be impacted by that. Happy to you know, go over that too. Okay. Well, you know, I want to, I want to dig into your conviction in, I'll just call it like raw materials and or hard assets, depending on how you want to look at it. You made a comment about, you know, buying commodities while they're still in the ground and, and why that's you know a good play right now because of the valuation these companies are priced for failure. These are companies that have proven they, they've got an economic resource, mineral resource, but it's beneath the surface still. They have not extracted it yet. These companies are crazy cheap in my opinion right now. Um, so I'm allocating a lot of cash this direction as well. Let me tell you what I'm doing. I'd love to get your feedback on it. How about we do that? So right now I'm pushing a lot of cash towards um, mid-tier gold producers uh, and smaller gold producers for the same reason that that you like these companies because the market doesn't care about them right now. And I'm looking at companies that are producing maybe, you know, 150 to 250,000 ounces per year with a path to half a million and a vision to a million. And I like this sector right now because uh, I've got decent cash flows. Um, uh, the market hates them. And so I'm walking in with zero competition. Um, I'm mainly focused on precious metals, even though I 
have conviction in the thesis for base metals and renewable energy metals. But I guess my my concern about we haven't really experienced the coordinated global recession that might occur, I'm, I may be a bit more um, hesitant to jump into you know the copper, the nickels, and then all the various plays in the lithium, the cobalt, et cetera. Um, so right now I'm mainly focused on precious metals for that reason. I think that there might be a better buying opportunity in the near future for your coppers and your nickels. Let's start with that. What do you think about that thought process? Um, no, I think it's a, it's a interesting way to, uh, to look at the world and look at opportunities. I, I personally feel more comfortable with base metals in general. I think there's certainly a need for, for it, uh, for many reasons. I think a lot of people in your podcast and in YouTube have shared that in regards to the construction booms that we may see across the globe. Uh, but I more more importantly, you know, when you think about the cost of production and the cost to build a mine today, that is going to be an important aspect. And the reason why that middle part of the industry that you're referring to got so uh, impacted recently by uh, you know, the increase of capex and expected capex that is supposed to be for those projects to come into production and so forth. It's the main reason why those those valuations are so cheap. What I liked about the exploration side of the market, number one, is because if you are a believer of a, of a bull market that is a secular market for commodities in general, uh, those are the parts of the market that obviously uh, carry more of uh, higher returns, although they have higher risk. Um, and so to me, that is an attractive part uh, just, just for that aspect alone. Um, most of the billionaires in this industry of mining have made their money in exploration mostly, right? Yeah. Um, and then after that, they spend most of their time in development and production side. Uh, and you can name many of them. Uh, from Ross Beatty to Tom Kaplan, um, you know, <laughs> there's a long list of those guys that basically made all their capital uh, in 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 the side of the exploration. So to me, taking a, a hybrid venture capital approach into that side of the industry is even more attractive. Um, another way to think about this is how much capital do you need to find a major discovery? If you're in the oil industry. It's hundreds of millions of dollars, essentially, for you to start a kind of exploration project. Um, in different parts of the world, in the mining space, you're probably going to spend, you know, you can spend three to five million dollars and make a major discovery. Um, and so knowing that a lot of those potential discoveries, they're not already resource-based uh, 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 businesses, um, they, uh, they're just priced as if they don't have any odds of finding anything. And some of those companies, when you look at the work they've done, uh, they have an incredibly high, um, probability of finding major discoveries. And when you think of that way and you spread the risk across many of those companies, owning a very large percentage of them over time through a fund or, or through your own network, um, I think this is, uh, probably one of the most attractive ways to, kind of ride the wave of most of the billionaires in the industry. Um, and so to me, I think uh, we're going to see the need for major discoveries in the future. Um, and uh, I can't imagine that that part of the industry will be left alone. So um, I I do think that all parts of the industry will do well, especially the one you're invested. And, uh, you know, if, if there is a, a, a real cycle for gold um, and precious metals, I've never seen a gold cycle that doesn't 
happen interconnected with other commodities. If you, I know you're concerned about copper. I've suggested to look at a chart of gold and copper going back 30 years, 40 years. And you can see that it's essentially the same chart. Yes, there's more cyclicality, but they're kind of the same chart. Um, if if you get into a 2000s period, copper is going to go up in value too. Um, you know, it's hard to believe gold is going to go up and copper won't. So they usually yeah. commodity markets are all interconnected. Um, and I, I'm only saying that because I've done the same research and I was concerned about even agricultural commodities. And guess what? Agricultural commodities and gold are kind of the same chart too, uh, going back 30 years or so. I'm happy to send those charts to you. And when I saw that, to me, it was, you know, if I have such a high conviction, and I do think there's so many drivers macro-wise for precious metals in general, uh, I have to at least take a look at the other commodity sides. And, um, you know, I think there's many reasons to believe that, that the same will happen, particularly if you are the view of, a, of an inflationary period, at least higher than historical standards. Um, so... There's a lot of ways to skin the cats and some 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 folks will tell you don't mess with exploration because it's high risk. There's, you know, uh, and certainly that's I'm not trying to paint the a picture that it's an easy part of the market to be invested. Um, but uh, I just happen to be connected with folks that I think are, um, you know, probably the best exploration geologists we've seen in the industry. And and so, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to make a leverage bet on on that on them essentially and and I think this is a uh, uh, not only working out but I think will work out very well over the you know next three to five years yeah well and yeah as you mentioned your your partner Quentin is one of the most respected geos in the business that's for sure you know okay I'll stick with the copper thesis there you know the copper minted the first world the world's first billionaire Jacob Fugar like the 1400s really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my audience can fact check me if I'm wrong, but I believe he was the world's first billionaire. Uh, he made his wealth from copper mining. He was like a German merchant, small time, but in the 1400s. Um, and he made his money from copper. So where are you looking in terms of copper projects then, Tavi? Are you, uh, you know, I see the world as maybe a bit more fragmented than it used to be. If I've spent my entire life in the area of, in the era of globalization, that era might be coming to some kind of a close. And we're going into some era of deglobalization, whatever that looks like, but maybe more, you know, harder battle lines between enemies that used to coordinate aren't going to coordinate any longer, which might make the location of strategic resources like copper a lot more important. And so walk me through your, your process for identifying opportunity in the copper sector. I think it's very similar to the gold process, by the way. It's it's always looking for scalable projects that... Uh, uh, are in areas that we've seen mines being developed. Um, and also uh, there is a path towards production at some point. And a lot of them are very, very early projects for obvious reasons. And so I would say that copper, the difference with gold is certainly the fact of, uh, in terms of the supply side, is, is not a, an issue to find copper. The issue is to find high-grade copper. And yeah. so, you know, we focus very much so on grade and it has to be very much economically viable and uh, it's not easy to find those it's been uh, it's been very difficult to uh, to find large copper so but when you, when we do they're usually a uh, massive place and so um in terms of jurisdiction uh i think majority of our copper place are in some parts of canada us we have investments in in also australia um 
and South America in, is is a, is a big part of our portfolio too. I think most of those base metals are, are in those parts. Uh, gold, uh, it's sort of in the same jurisdictions. Um, Brazil is is another one that we have. Uh, Bolivia is one jurisdiction that I think is is a contrarian opinion that we have relative to the rest of the world. A lot of people have very skeptics uh, views about skeptical views about Bolivia. I do too, and I think there are many reasons to believe in that. But there's a net change that is becoming more positive over time. Um, and even speaking with other major companies in 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 the area uh, have attracted us to be more, um, you know, to at least uh, in, not only invest, but really look at other projects that there are available in the area. And, you know, it's just a very unexplored region of the world. And there's a lot of those places across the globe, uh, not only Bolivia, uh, but other parts of especially South America uh, that I think look really attractive. I think South America, you have to be really careful uh, not only looking at the political changes, but watching the commodity market. The reason why Venezuela became so difficult to invest and all the turns that we've had over the years was also related to the oil prices collapse that we saw in 2014 all the way to yeah. 2018, 2019, and so forth. And you know, that certainly exacerbated those political issues. Uh, right now, I'm not sure we're seeing that environment. And so um, that allows us to take... Uh, I guess a a kind of positive outlook and start looking at those areas to to invest. And so uh, we take political issues very serious, but um, I think every for you know every asset has, has or for every risk there's a price. And so um, certainly there's some projects that are starting to look more attractive. Um, yeah, I hope I answer your question, but that's that's sort of the way I'm approaching this. Yeah, yeah. And are are you looking at? Uh lithium projects at all right now? Have you allocated any cash this direction? No. I mean, there's a very small amount of capital that we put on, into uh, lithium. Uh, the lithium market is rich. I mean, it's it's a, it's very expensive in general. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a sucker for things that are unloved that not a lot of people are talking about. And I guess um, lithium doesn't fall into that category. It's the first question I get from every institutional investor uh, that wants to invest in our funds or people that we speak with. And so um, I think there's going to be great developments there. There is a lot of, I think there are a lot of investors uh, uh, putting capital into businesses that are probably never going to be uh, a mine. And uh, I think there's two types of lithium projects. The ones, and it's very similar to most base metals, really, uh, where you get projects that will be able to become uh, mines and others that just won't just because of the, uh, you know, metallurgy issues and, and others. I mean, if people only, if, if anybody who is more of an environmentalist um, and believes in lithium in general, I've suggested to go watch uh, how lithium is extracted, and you will probably change your mind immediately about about the whole thing. But um, so we've we've had opportunities to invest in some 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 high grade projects in different parts, actually in in, in Brazil and Canada before, okay. and they end up being great investments. But uh, it's I don't think it's the main focus of Crescent. I think there's great value to be found in, in nickel, um, copper, manganese. Um, yeah. I think there's you know tremendous. Uh, value to to look at other uh, electrification metals that will become strategic over time, uh, along with lithium. And I'm not short lithium or anything like that, but I think there's better value opportunities in other parts of the mining space. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And you're right. It is definitely a hot subject and attracting a lot of retail interest right now. Um, look, I appreciate your your critical eye on this, Tabby. It's, you know, something I always say to investors when they're, you know, making decisions in the market is every time you buy equity in anything, you're having a disagreement with somebody, right? The seller, right? You're disagreeing about the value of that share price. You're making the uh, assumption that it's undervalued and going to go up, but they're making the assumption it's overvalued and going to go down. And so, you know, you need to be able to answer the question, what do I know this person doesn't, right? And um, that's a hard question to answer when uh, when retail is flooding towards anything right now. We're seeing that, you know, all through the S&P. And I wouldn't say so much in the lithium market to the same extent, but absolutely. I mean, I think even at, at the BMO conference, for the first time ever, there were a handful of car manufacturers at that show, and they're looking for lithium companies, right? Um, which we haven't seen at commodity investment conferences ever. So anyways. You made a good point, by the way, um, just a final point, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, you know, back in the 90s, we really financed most of the technology space uh, in our sector was venture capital, um, you know, the private equity funds. You almost need some sort of capital source to create a, you know, an evolution in, in one part of the economy. And it is important what we've seen so far with uh, car manufacturers entering the mining space. Um, I also think it's interesting what's happening with the gold space in terms of the big major companies almost moving away from gold production. Uh, and if you looked at back in history in the 70s and early 2000s, production for gold was falling as gold prices were entering a secular bull market. So, you know, this skepticism towards big major companies towards a metal or something doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of that metal. <laughs> in fact, it might be the main reason why you should be focused on it. Um, and today, I think even energy companies might start getting more involved. We've seen Exxon and some others starting to get involved with lithium, but other other metals too. And uh, I think that's interesting because um, those businesses are printing money today and they are likely to be getting more involved with mining over time because of the economics of it will look more and more appealing as metal prices rise. And so I think we're going we're gonna to need that capital source. And it's probably going to come from auto uh, businesses, but also energy companies and potentially even some sovereign uh, money too will, will get involved. I mean, Saudi Arabia getting involved in a large way with mining. I th I don't think that's the I think that's the beginning of a trend, not the end of one. So um, I'm I'm also looking towards what what's going to be that source of capital that will uh, sort of unleash those big trends in the commodity space and especially create that value opportunity uh, in those in those companies of the of the mining space overall. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's a major headline: the, the Saudi Arabia development, right? MBS building a bunch of cash to deploy into the mining market. Significant. It's very significant. And we talk about, you know, watch the big money move, right? Are you following the Cobalt story at all? This is the uh, Silicon Valley's newest unicorn, right? Billion dollar valuation spearheaded by Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, probably some others. And they're looking, uh, their, their mission, as I understand it, is to create um, the, a Google Earth no, a, a Google Maps of the Earth's crust, right? Um, mapping out the mineral distribution around the planet with the intention of discovering cobalt, nickel, copper, and lithium deposits. And, and then they're now actively invested, I think, in over 100 um, early stage um, 
base and critical metal companies, which is another interesting thread to follow, right? That's big money from a jurisdiction that historically does not invest in mining, assembling a huge capital pool and attacking the resource sector. Um, it's yeah, interesting. Those things are, uh, are going to be, I mean, it, sometimes I, I walk in places like New York and I think about it. Wow. How, you know, how much money people made on real estate or some different uh, ways of make that they made money back in those days and look so obvious today, right? Walking in, in those big cities and, and you, you know, clearly there was a trend that a lot of people miss and some others create a lot of wealth. And I keep thinking, what's that today? And staking ground in, in you know, really uh, prolific ground in, in different parts of the world for, uh, for uh, with the, the exploration uh, hat and, and really trying to accomplish those uh, those big discoveries um, is something that is still available. And uh, it amazes me that there's not enough people spending time uh, staking claims in, in different parts of the world that look really attractive. And so that's what I spend most of my time with the companies that we invest in, because I think that's the next real estate, really. So um, why not spend most of your time there if that's what you believe? So, um, but it's, that's sort of the way kind of I, I think about is, is sort of, uh, you know, it's looking back in, in New York and seeing all those big buildings and that look so obvious today. There were great investments, but back in those days, I'm sure a lot of people missed it. And I think I don't go to a, a restaurant or a bar and hear people talking about, uh, you know, investing in resource businesses today. I hear people talking about Bitcoin and AI and all sorts of stuff, but I don't hear people talking about that. And so that, you know, as a contrarian nature that I have, at least, and I, I think you do as well. Um, it's just immediately comes as a, as a, as part of my radar to, uh, to be more interested in that part of the, of the economy and that part of the world. So, um, anyways, uh, to me this, yeah, it's really attractive what's happening right now. Mm. Look, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Tavi and chatting with me. And I want to send everybody to crescat.net where they can find a lot more about what you do, including a lot of content that you publish and, and write. Um, definitely worth a follow on Twitter, best charts in the business, but, uh, Tavi, thanks again, man. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Jay. Appreciate your, uh, your time as well. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.